we have exciting news. Our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now for pre-orders from all major retailers. And we have a special offer. Once you pre-order, share your proof of purchase with us and receive a copy of our first chapter. Visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for retailer links and all the details. A number of times, a number of my colleagues have said to me, isn't palliative care just good patient care? And I have to kind of smile and say, well, yeah, actually, that's what it is. That, that's what it is. Like, who wouldn't want to go see their family physician even for a non-palliative issue and have all of their fears and goals addressed and uh, talk about their hopes and, uh, you know, um, the things that are important to them. Today, we are interviewing Jennifer Klassen, a social worker, Shannon Reimer, a nurse, and Dr. Cornelius Welk, a palliative care physician. They are interprofessional providers who work in the community and are based out of Southern Health Sud in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We talk about how the seven keys are being used by their team from their perspectives as a social worker, nurse, and physician. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So this is the first time we have interviewed an interdisciplinary team together. Um, so it's going to be a bit of an adventure, but I'd love to start uh, by each of you explaining the roles that you each play on your team and how you work together. How about we start with you, Dr. Welk? And, and you can call me Corny all you want. All right, sure. Corny then. Corny, what's your role in the community-based team? So my role is uh, that of a palliative care physician. Um, maybe I should tell you a little bit about the program so that uh, I can kind of, uh, you know, it kind of make sense of it. Uh, I uh, started as a family physician about 35 years ago, almost. And uh, after about nine years of practice, one of the things I realized was that I wasn't very good at looking after people at the end of their lives. I was doing a lot of cancer care, but I wasn't probably very good at that last bit. And so one of the things I decided to do was take a year off and study palliative care. And I did that in London, Ontario at the time when there wasn't uh, the current uh, ability to go off and do a, a fellowship the way lots of people do nowadays. But back then, it was kind of cobbled together and supported by um, various, uh, various organizations. And uh, so uh, I, I moved my family there. Uh, we had our last baby there. It was a, it was a wonderful year for many reasons. Um, and uh, I, I came back to uh, Southern Manitoba uh, thinking that I, what I really like to do is do more palliative care. And uh, luckily, um, the chief medical officer at the time said, we have a 0.2 position for you in our region of 110,000 people. So why don't you just go ahead and do it? So that's how I started. It was uh, 25 years ago almost now, and uh, it, it was uh, a bit of a challenge. And I went from hospital to personal care home to homes. And there, uh, when I could, of course, point two is like one day a week. Um, and um, 
and uh, uh, there was a nurse appointed to to uh, also head up some aspects of of uh, palliative care. So that was that was the start of a very small. Uh, a very small start to a program that's really grown. Over the years now, we've added, um, there are three of us physicians, there's three half-time physicians, and there are um, a, a number of nurses, eight or nine nurses, uh, mostly half-time, and there are three half-time uh, social work positions, uh, uh, two of which are currently filled by Jennifer. And, um, it's a it's a great team. It's a it's very different. You know the the program model down in Southern Health right now is one that's uh, distributed, supported, or supportive, really distributed, supportive, and built on a primary care network. So basically, it's distributed throughout the whole region, and the region is large. Uh, and there's a now the the region is doubled because the they've amalgamated. So Southern Health has got about two hundred thousand people. So it's so it there's no point in having um, people somewhat centralized somewhere. You have to have them distributed out. Um, they they're they're supportive to families. They're supportive to family physicians, and this is really a primary care model. So we're trying to support family docs to do good palliative care, and and to support them when they don't, or support them when they can't, or support them when they won't, but to encourage them to do it along the way. So that so my role is to is the medical piece of that. But to be honest, like there's three medical docs, uh, palliative care physicians, and there's lots more nurses. So, and this the nursing and the social work physicians are the ones that really are the glue that hold this all together. So maybe I will throw it to Shannon. Maybe you can talk a little bit about um, your perspective as a nurse on the team and what you see in the community and what some of the challenges you face. I do a, we do a mixture. So we see people in their homes in community. And then if people are in the acute care centers, we see them there as well. And then in the PCHs as well. So um, we kind of just go to wherever they are uh, and, and provide that extra layer of support there. One of the challenges I find is um, managing time, kind of choosing who is the most urgent and kind of going there first and having enough time to provide all of that support. Um, I've been a nurse since 2011 and I've been a palliative care nurse since 2017. So I'm still fairly new to this role. And I've always felt drawn to end of life care. I, I do find it I find it very, um, I find it an honor to be able to help somebody in that last chapter of their life. So I really enjoy what I do. Thanks, Shannon. And maybe I can now bring in Jennifer, a social worker on the team. And what are some of the, the issues that you see patients and families needing that you're dealing with on a daily basis? I have a wide range of things I deal with, with the clients and families and community hospitals, care homes, um, everything with helping with practical issues, um, setting them up with compassionate care leave, family caregiver leave if they want to take time off to be with their family, um, providing, of course, psychosocial supports that can look like anything from working with a client and dealing with their fears and anxiety of end of life. Um, 
anger, sadness, dealing with um, maybe regrets, things that they maybe want to have closure to before they die, but also working with families and providing that self-care and dealing with anxiety, um, giving them tools to help them through that time. So when their loved one does die, they have the tools to support themselves and to keep going. Um, bereavement is a huge piece. I think over half my caseload right now is bereavement. I do spend up to a year with some families, some less, some, I think I'm going the two year mark with some, um, they just need a little extra support. And of course I refer out. So if I find I need to make uh, an assessment or an application for outside support for more counseling and stuff for them, that's kind of where I fit in. Thank you. We, we invited this team onto the call because we met at a conference in Manitoba and you guys had come up to us after and said, you know, the podcast really resonated with you. And so I'm curious, um, and, and it might sound sort of self-serving, but it, it's really to try to understand how people on front in the front lines who are providing, you know, care at the bedside, um, a podcast like this, in what ways does this connect with your work? And did it help to change practice or illuminate any um, new ideas that you've tried and, and, and seen make a difference? I'll blame Shannon for getting me hooked on listening to you guys. So she can explain why she started, but definitely feel that we're using some of your tools, your keys uh, in the work we do. Um, I've been doing palliative care about two years now, and probably only since I started listening to you guys, really pulling out those light bulb moments of the walking to roads and to customizing their order, inviting themselves into the conversation. And I think a lot of that ties in with some of the work that Shannon does in her role as a palliative care nurse, which I'll let her speak about. Um, but definitely I find we're using a lot of the, the, the keys that you guys use and they're very helpful to the families that we work with. I, I love your podcast. Yes, I've listened to most of them. I, like Jen, I find that I use a lot of those key phrases in, in my difficult conversations that I have now. And what I like about the keys is that it really, they are tailored for not only healthcare providers, but for families and patients and their, their language that, that everybody kind of can understand. And it kind of gives, gives us all the same words to use. Um, so I find I use like the zooming out and roadmap. I find that I use that a lot now. And the customizing your order, I really like that one too. That one kind of, I find, relates to um, what matters to you in our region. I don't know if you, when I met you guys, I think we talked a little bit about that. Um, and that's kind of a, global initiative but we've we're doing it in southern health right now and it's kind of just adding in that one question what's important to you into our assessments and i know we do that in palliative care and we ask that in a lot of different ways but just getting used to kind of adding it to our checklist of questions as healthcare providers and just with that goal of helping us to make sure that the care is patient-centered right and customized to what they want. So I, I find that those two I find really uh, are related to for me. And so um, yeah, I, I, I find I use that one a lot. Um, I also find just 
personally, not as a nurse, I really like the keys because often sometimes people will come up to you as a nurse and share healthcare experiences that they're having. And maybe there's room for improvement in some of them. And so it's kind of an easy way to say, you know, have you listened to this? Maybe you should take a listen and give them something that that can help them. So um, yeah, I find it helpful in a professional lens and personal as well. Maybe my next question can go to Corny because part of the changing our language and the waiting room revolution was our, was our goal to go upstream and to try to provide this idea of a palliative care approach earlier in the illness trajectory. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about your experiences and if you think that, um, you know, that if that's worth doing and how difficult it is to do that. So providing a palliative care approach early is really challenging for lots of reasons. Um, sometimes they're system reasons, sometimes they're patient reasons, sometimes they're families, sometimes they're clinician reasons, right? Um, I, I, I've had the incredible privilege of working at the Community Cancer Program at Boundary Trails Health Center in Southern Manitoba for the past many, many years. And there, I look after people who are having chemotherapy. And as you know, half of them will survive and half of them will not. And so sometimes you know ahead of time that you don't know ahead of time whether they will or not, but sometimes you kind of know. And it does give you the opportunity of having, um, well, I used to call it having a, a foot in both camps, you know, having a foot in the camp of uh, working hard to try to beat the disease and having a foot in the camp of helping the patient come to terms with their illness. And, um, and so uh, I, uh, I, this, the, this, a term of walking two roads um, was new to me, but the the actual concept wasn't new at all. Um, I've been doing that for a long time, uh, but I like the term. I, I also used the term um, um, uh, walking two lanes. Um, so it's 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 almost like these two roads that you've described are right beside each other, and and you know, at some point you're going to be on the one on the right, but everybody's hoping to stay on the one on the left. And you have to know when to, to shoulder check and get into the right lane. And if you don't do that at the right time, you could end up in an accident, right? So it's, it's a little like that when the patient might be ready or they might not be ready. Sometimes, sometimes the family might not be ready and you're pushing and the patient is ready. Sometimes Sometimes we might actually move the patient there and the specialist is unhappy because we've moved them there, even though all of us kind of know that it's, uh, it's potentially there. So Corny, could you give us an example of how you're going upstream and providing this approach earlier? I'll give you an example. I met a fellow who uh, uh, was referred to our program through home care because home care said, this guy doesn't look very good he looks like he's going to die and we really need to have palliative care involved. He's still waiting to see oncology, but he doesn't look very good. So on a Friday afternoon, we get this consult and, you know, we're not a, we're not a weekend service. We managed to make some phone communication with the family. And then I and the nurse went to go see him on the Tuesday morning. And 
it was clear that he was not doing well, that his family was around him, that they were waiting to see the oncologist that Thursday, and they were hoping for some kind of news that would help him, but there was really not going to be any treatment for this, and he was looking quite poor. And the, the long story short is that he actually died a couple of days later, um, and, and that the family said to us, you know, if we had only known that he was dying, we could have actually been being prepared for him dying rather than waiting for an appointment that wasn't really going to tell us anything. And we didn't know. And we didn't know how to access. And when we looked back, we realized that there had been exposure to a number of different healthcare professionals, including a number of specialists, but not cancer specialists along the way. Um, and it's it's uh, it's patients like that who caused us to work alongside um, the Canadian Home Care Association um, and develop something called a Collaborative Palliative Care Planning Forum, a Collaborative Palliative Care Planning Forum. And basically, what we what we tried to do was uh, have this group of people of different disciplines that would be virtually available uh, on a Thursday morning for a brief consult. This wasn't really meant to be a pain consult, or a, it, but it was meant to be the, con the consult for a patient where somebody is saying, hey, things are not going well. It looks like this person might not make this. And we need help here. And so sometimes the, the group of us could get together and it would include social work and, and uh, nursing and physio and home care and the palliative care coordinator and physicians. And so um, we would all just phone in, right? It's all virtual. And we would be able to direct um, the care a little bit in a direction that would uh, maybe be more helpful. So that's an example, I think, of a way that one can get people into the system early. Now, maybe that's not early enough. Maybe they should be in uh, three months earlier than that. But at this point, they weren't even getting in prior to dying. And so uh, some way we can um, get people referred earlier. And this, this um, forum could have um, access from lots of different areas. Home care could access it and uh, physio could, you know, I'm seeing somebody in the office and hmm, this is kind of confusing. I could, anybody could access it. Yeah, no, I love that. I love, you know, in some ways it's building capacity for other healthcare workers um, who have the gestalt that something's right, but, you know, didn't have someone to connect to, but also an access point for patients and families who want to know more, but um, don't know where to turn to. So maybe that's this is a good chance to turn a question to uh, maybe Jennifer, and then I'll get Shannon next. I mean, our, our goal was to improve patient experience. And I'm curious from your uh, conversations with families before and during bereavement, like how do you know if you've done a good job? Like the impact of good palliative care or people being in the know throughout the whole journey do you see it uh, in your work of that there's a difference in the way people grieve or in other ways? Definitely, I feel the more time we have with families, specifically I'm thinking of families with children and to get into the home prior to and to talk about anticipatory grief and to work through emotions and educate, teach the children what they're going to see. Um, definitely that helps. Um, 
I feel like even just to make that rapport with family members and to be that support afterwards to just know that there's someone familiar coming to the home for bereavement um, to connect with them, they, they feel safe to provide that safe place. I think the best way to know you're doing the, a good job is a hug, just knowing that you know, you're welcomed, you're in their safe space, you're, um, you're welcomed in and you just know that you're that one person maybe that they can really um, vent or, or talk to and openly share about how they're really feeling. I feel that's probably the most impactful is, is just knowing that, yeah, just knowing that they have made a relationship with me and to connect that way if there's no one else they can talk to. But the nurses do such a good job about that as well and following up with bereavement too that I'm not involved with every family. Um, there's no way I could be. Um, but definitely, the, again, with the corny saying that sooner we can get in, um, definitely there's more of a relationship built and that trust and to be on that journey with them. Yeah, we often say on our podcast, we can't change the illness, but we can change the experience. And so what you're really talking about is, you know, being with and shepherding along the way um, and just being there, which is one of the most, you know, sometimes that's the best thing that we can do. So turning to Shannon, um, what is your experience like? like? You know, how would you measure if you knew that the impact of your team and the work that you do? So out of the referrals that I do get, I, I often will get self-referrals or referrals from family members. And that speaks to, you know, when I, when I call them, they'll often say, well, I, I, I heard the, that you were involved in so-and-so's care and what a good experience that was and how valuable you your support was in that in that situation so I find that maybe that's how I know we're doing a good job is where people can see the impact you have and and that word gets around so and oftentimes then you know a facility will will refer again as well um, when they see the value of that extra layer and how you can help. So I feel like that's kind of one of the ways, you know, you're doing a good job is people talk and, and hopefully they, you know, they're saying, saying uh, good things. Um, and like Dr. Welk and Jen have both said, in my experience, the sooner we can get in the better and having those, um, I, those important conversations. I love the serious illness conversation guide. I'm a huge fan. I love being able to do that. Um, right when I meet somebody, not only do the patients love it, but I love it because I really get to know them and, and get to know what, what their values and goals are and, and so that their care is and their experience is how they want it to be. Thank you, Shannon. And Corny, I feel like you might have something to say about patient experience too. Well, patients, you know, families often thank you at the at after the end or or during the process. And you you get a lot of feedback from them that way. It's not written feedback. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's cards afterwards, right? But yeah, I think it's that, uh, it's like Jennifer says, it's that hug. It's not necessarily a hug, but it's that look. It's that uh, sense of uh, somebody taking you back to the door and saying, thank you for coming. Uh, 
a doctor has never come to our home before. Those are comments that you know they value that kind of visit. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that that's uh, there's a. I often am amazed at how much I gain from a visit when I leave a place and wonder. I hope I've left as much as I've taken because um, people are often very kind, looking after their families, and so. Um, now, that isn't to say that there aren't also some challenging cases. Sometimes when you wonder, am I really making a difference here? And how can I make a difference here because things are too complicated or because things are not changeable? It's not it's not up to me to fix some of these things. But um, I think, you know, if, if we uh, if we treat people in a patient centered way, in a consistent way, and we get and we get thank yous back and warm feelings back from many of them, then hopefully if we're treating the other ones the same way, then the reasons we're not getting those feelings back aren't only because we're not treating them well, it's because of other things in the background. And we just sure, accept sure. them and be humble about it and continue to take our feet off, our shoes off, continue to take our shoes off at the door and continue to be in their space um, and be, be willing to hear them and learn from them. So if I can follow up, one of the things that makes your team special is that you are in the community. You're working in people's homes and not in the hospital, like Sammy does. So I'm curious, how is that different than palliative care in a hospital setting? One of the things that I, I wanted to just emphasize was that you know, in most of medical care, things are, are built on a hierarchy of primary, secondary, and tertiary care. So when you're in the primary care system, you look after people's blood pressure. And when they start having problems with chest pain, you might need to send them to a secondary center and they may need to have a stress test or something done. And if they need to have bypass surgery, they're going to be in the tertiary care center, which is going to be in a hospital somewhere in a high density populated area. And that's the way it should be, because those people are going to be the very best at looking after those patients. However, palliative care turns that model upside down because patients want to be as close to home as possible. They don't want to die off in some tertiary care center. They don't want to die in some specialty palliative care unit, as special as it might be. They actually want to die near home or at home, if possible. So we need to do all we can, not only to help provide them care at home, but provide them high level care at home. So it's like they're getting tertiary palliative care at home, which is kind of against the usual kind of thinking. And um, I think lots of specialists have a hard time getting their heads around that for a good reason, because we live in a system that has a certain hierarchy. And, uh, and the one I think we need to aim for is to try to bring the best care to people as close to home as possible. So if building on that, maybe I can look to Jennifer first and then to Shannon, but um, connected to that idea of, of, you know, where people want to die and, and this idea of person-centered care, you know, often it's talked about that, you know, the best, the cities are where things are at and an urban center with all the gadgets. But I've all, my, it's been my experience that in, you know, less urban areas, rural areas, or other parts of our beautiful country, um, there's, it can also be seen as resource rich, and there's lots of benefits, uh, you know, and so I'm just curious, from your experiences, um, what does it look like being outside a city center, and what are some of the benefits 
that can happen. Well, for sure, I, I enjoy working in the smaller uh, homes and stuff. My my experience coming into palliative care has been about eleven years in long term care. So working in the in the nursing homes here in southern Manitoba, they have all been on the smaller side where you are getting more of that personalized centered care. We're trying to create care plans, do relaxed breakfasts everything that we would want as I would hope when we get there one day that we would want when we're in care home. Um, and I see that too. And we look at their palliative care programs. We're looking at what, um, what do they want? Customizing our order. Do they want to be at home? Um, what does that look like for them? At what point might they need to go to the hospital? And if so, what would you want that to look like? Working in a rural hospital, we do have, some hospitals have a palliative care room. Uh, the one hospital we're in, in the one town we have our offices in has a palliative care room, not all do, um, but they do try to make it as home-like as possible, which I think um, you, can't, you can't get away from the bells and whistles, but we try and have it down a quieter hallway. We try to give respect to the families to not do check-ins unless we need to give medications, try to give that freedom. Um, so definitely try to, to be a bit more person-centered in that regard. Um, I love the experience of working in long-term care. I grew up in the city. I graduated with my first degree in the city and I moved out as soon as I could. So I am, I'm a lifer for Southern Manitoba um, and I love the rural experience. I feel that we're giving um, that, that person-centered care that we need and we aren't getting from the busyness of the hospital in the city. And Shannon, Maybe similarly, like as a nurse working in a community and it's a larger geographic area, I mean, how is your experience different? Is it easier to partner with other community services and neighbors and things like that? Is there more of that community, compassionate community feel? Or what is the experience like as a, as a frontline nurse? Yeah, definitely. Um, when you say resource rich, I, I think rurally we are resource rich just reframe that in a different way it's that sense of community and that's how like myself I grew up on a farm and continue to live on a farm and and so in these small rural communities a lot of us have lived this life where that community is very important and so being able to provide care in those communities People are able to continue to live life how they have lived. And, you know, we work with the home care program and there's, there's volunteer programs that are robust that will help and, and spiritual care um, as well and on top of our, our palliative team. And so I find that between everybody and that community base that people have, that informal you know, when somebody's sick, there's a meal schedule being planned by the community and people are dropping off food and it's all of those, those types of things. So yeah, I think we are very resource rich in that, in that way. I, I was going to comment, I was at a home of a patient not that long ago who has, had, was dying it, the, and the spouse said that they had moved into the community only a few years before. And uh, when they moved in from another province, um, before they even had the moving truck uh, opened, then there were already neighbors standing around saying, how can we help you move this stuff in? 
So um, uh, there, there's a real neighborly feel in many of our communities. That, that doesn't happen all over the place. And there are certainly challenges uh, in delivering palliative care in rural areas. You know, some of our patients will say, well, I don't want so-and-so looking after me because I know her too well. Or I don't want so-and-so in the home because I don't know them at all. <laughs> and sometimes it's a fine line between not knowing someone at all or knowing them too well um, and allowing them to provide care. But in general, um, there's a real sense of support. Yeah, I mean, that's the very definition of compassionate communities and caring for one another. I just wanted to say something else that was probably somewhat related. And, you know, some of our wards will have, as Jennifer pointed out, will have uh, some beds or maybe just one bed in a small, small hospital, but um, a few beds that are, are, are kind of more for patients receiving palliative care, and then others are receiving perhaps regular medical care. Um, there, so this doesn't happen in a big center. You would go to the palliative care ward. Well, I guess maybe it would in some areas, but beca because there's because there's this focus on palliative care in the few patients that are registered with palliative care and are and the, and the whole focus is that way. Some of that care spills over into the rest of the care. I think sometimes we forget how important that can be. So, you know, um, when there's this high em emphasis on what's important to you for the, for the few patients on the ward that have a palliative focus of care, that emphasis of what's important to you spills over into those even who don't have that emphasis. And shouldn't that be the case for them too? Isn't isn't, isn't that just healthy for everyone? Mm -hmm. I think that connects to the idea of a palliative approach to care right from the start of a life-changing diagnosis, not only for those who are at end of life, right? And how there are ebbs and flows of how much support people need over time. It's not an all or nothing approach. And so I think the waiting revolution was really trying to show patients and families how to leach out a palliative care approach without the labels because sometimes it's the labels and putting things in boxes that prevent people from getting what they really need. It's, it's really challenging because lots of patients and families don't really know very much about palliative care and aren't very interested in palliative care because it's not about them at that point. And it's hard to get them interested at a time when they have really no reason to be interested but if you don't do it then, then it might be too late by the time they actually need it. Um, and that's a challenge. I, I don't know how to overcome that apart from just continuing to provide really good palliative care and allow the word of mouth to get out there to say, you know, wait a minute, have you thought that the palliative care system might be able to provide some benefit for Auntie May or whoever it is that needs the care. I think like Dr. Welk said, with, with anything good you're doing, it's word of mouth, essentially. And I feel like that is happening already. And I don't know, when you do good work, it's, and when you're, 
when you're excited about something and you're passionate about something that's contagious people can sense that so I think continuing to do that like in many ways what palliative care is is person-centered care right you're giving you're humanizing a natural thing that's happening or or a, a natural chapter in life that will happen to all of us and you're focusing on pay, the person and their families and what and so I think if that is the heart of medicine and many why many people go into to a care healthcare profession is to try to help people and so you know that piece of it should be something that every healthcare provider should want to emulate and and be able to do the basics of anyway but uh, yeah, please build on that, Jennifer. I was just going to say, I, I feel very honored and blessed to just be a part of the team. I think everyone on this team, um, they have their hearts on their sleeves. They're in it for the passion, for the desire to help. And as Shannon mentioned earlier, we're at the last chapter of their lives. So just as beautiful as a birth can be and the journey of their life, we can try and make the end of their life, their last chapter, as beautiful as we can be, as most comfortable. Um, to somehow bring in the ones that they love, family and friends, and to, to know who this person is and to make sure that their loved ones can keep their legacy going. Um, one thing I know I, I personally would like to do more of work-wise is legacy work with, with clients and patients. Um, but I do feel we have made, in our small little town, we have come, Leaps and bounds in the last couple of years, I feel since Shannon and I have been in our in our facility, even to just um, educate the staff and to be a part of rounds and to have them just to know that we're there and to say, well, that sounds like maybe you could use a little extra, right? So to have that extra support there with the palliative care. So I, I feel we've come leaps and bounds and we're not coming in at the 11th hour as as much as we still do sometimes come in, as Dr. Welk has said before, but we do try to get in earlier and to, to make those um, connections and those relationships. A number of times, a number of my colleagues have said to me, isn't palliative care just good patient care? And I have to kind of smile and say, well, yeah, actually, that's what it is. That, that's what it is. Like, who wouldn't want to go see their family physician even for a non-palliative issue and have all of their fears and goals addressed and uh, talk about their hopes and, uh, you know, um, the things that are important to them? Um, treating patients' dignity uh, is not limited to palliative care, but we should all be treating patients with dignity. So. Um, you know, one of the things to bring more people into the tent is simultaneously that we try to bring palliative care into the medical world a little earlier, get, get to, to, yeah, to bring it earlier. And as we do that, then people will see the value, I think. Yeah. And it isn't just patients and families understanding the value of an early palliative care approach but so too all the interprofessional colleagues in the system and the partners you work with as well, right? We have a, we have a really close, so uh, on our team specifically are um, uh, a number of nurses and social workers and the three part-time physicians as I've described, but we have a very close working relationship with home care. Um, and that's gotten really close in the last few years. And uh, increasingly, home care staff are recognizing the value of involving us 
and, uh, and knowing more about palliative care. So that's been really positive. We also have a really good working relationship with OT and um, maybe PT as well, but really OT is so important um, and they're willing to go into homes and assess things. So those would be two uh, big highlights for me. One thing I will just add as well is, I know we have our three palliative physicians. Um, so sometimes when we're doing home visits, because we all work part-time, schedules don't always line up. So sometimes we'll do a home visit on our own or uh, social work will come or a palliative doc will come. But there are also a lot of family doctors, I find, that are engaged um, and will come and do home visits as well. So that's always really great. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was amiss not mentioning the family physician who um, is super important uh, in in uh, really providing care. And lots of, the, lots of patients have got a longstanding relationship with their family physician. And we should, I think, as a palliative specialty and uh, interdisciplinary group, we, we should really be supporting those relationships. They're, they're longstanding, many of them. They, they are trusting relationships and they should be supported. Now, sometimes they're, they've broken over time and they can be healed. And sometimes they're broken and they can't easily be healed. And sometimes we need to help them out. But uh, in general, I think lots of people have good relationships with their family physicians or primary care providers, and we should help them continue to do good work with those patients. So Corny, why do you do this work? I mean, it's hard work. What makes it worth it? One of the things that makes uh, work in this part of life so exciting for me and so interesting is that people are real. You know, um, you can put on all kinds of fronts and airs uh, as life goes on, but when you get towards the end of your life, it's coming. And um, it's very unlikely to see people who aren't willing to sit down with you and actually be real with you. And that's a real, um, I find that to be uh, very life-giving. Um, one of my family physician colleagues recently said, that kind of work fills my cup. And uh, I think that's what it does for lots of us. And that's why we continue to work in the area. Okay, so I will end with a question for each of you, just um, and uh, sort of the last question where you can each respond. But, you know, I, working in the healthcare system, I'm sure you often get uh, contacted by family members, friends, when people have a, uh, have a health situation, a health question. So I'm just curious, knowing what you know, what advice do you have for patients and families who are starting on a serious illness journey? So there are a number of resources that I typically refer to, and one of them is the Canadian Virtual Hospice, because it's a site that's well-recognized and has so many good resources in it. Um, uh, you've certainly got a number of resources as well at the waiting room revolution and things like bringing along a friend. If you're talking about practical things to, uh, for, you know, if a family comes to me and says, I'm going to see my doctor and he's going to likely be giving me some bad news. Is there something I need to know? And I would say, make sure that you 
um, think through the store your story ahead of time. Make sure you have your 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 dates straight. Don't think about the details in the office. Make sure you've thought about them ahead of time so that the history gathering can happen efficiently so that you can spend time talking about the things that are really important to you. Um, and make sure that you ask questions. Make sure that you bring along a friend that can take some notes. Many of those things that you've already highlighted at the waiting room revolution. And I'll bounce right off of that and just say tag your it because to know your team, to know who you want to have on your team for support, that is huge. Um, you need to know who your circle is and who your supports are going to be on this journey. Yeah, I would um, echo both of those. I've I've been at in visits with people where they've had binders with color-coded tabs of a history and and so being organized and like Dr. Welk said, having that history down and writing down questions for sure. There's a, a booklet from Virtual Hospice that I really like. It's coming full circle, planning for your care. And I, I really like, kind of goes through questions to think about beforehand and kind of what would you do in certain situations. So that one I find helpful to give out as well. Thank you all three of you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and talking with us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.